0: If you believe time is running out, and let me see by a show of hands, how many of you think time is short? Amen. If you believe time is out, go therefore and make disciples. That's our commission, amen? Amen. We heard about the commission last night. We heard about calling. So I would ask the question this morning, who are called to make disciples? All right, let's take a moment to pray. Father in heaven, we're thankful to be here. We ask for your blessings. We pray for your spirit. We ask that uh, you would help me not to be a hindrance to anyone learning. Uh, We pray that uh, everyone would hear your voice Is our prayer in Jesus' name, Amen. amen. So who are called to make disciples? The Savior's commission to the disciples included what? All the believers all the believers. It includes all believers in Christ to the end of time. It's a fatal mistake to suppose that the work of saving souls depends alone on the ordained minister. All to whom the heavenly inspiration has come are put in trust with the gospel. All who receive the life of Christ are ordained to work for the salvation of their fellow men. For this work the church was established, and all who take upon themselves its sacred vows are thereby pledged to be co-workers with Christ." You have been identified by your various church congregations as having the spiritual gift of leadership, spiritual leadership, right? So you are definitely called to be workers with Christ, Amen? amen? I believe that you all believe that or you wouldn't be here, right? We're all ministers. And interestingly, in all parts of the church where the membership views themselves in that capacity, the church is growing very rapidly. 60% of the baptisms in the Philippines are the result of the work of the laity. In East Africa and Mexico, where pastors have 20 to 30 churches, there's tremendous growth. Worldwide, as the pastor-to-member ratio increases, the growth rate drops. Look at this slide. That's very telling, isn't it? 12% growth in areas that are really short of pastors. Now, of course, there could be other things going on to explain this, but there's probably some evidence here in the numbers that when people see themselves as responsible for God's work, rather than as their pastor as bearing the responsibility, it results in rapid church growth. So would you like to know how to double your church's membership? Let me ask you this question. If you had the opportunity in your church to hire an evangelist that could convert a thousand people in a day or have one person that did some Bible studies and had one convert a year, but that convert went out and also got another convert the next year, what do you think would be the most effective method? this chart shows that after a period of time look at the 23rd year the second approach wins out and by the 26th year the second approach has seven times the effectiveness we want to be on God's plan always amen. Amen. this is God's plan for us to be out working for him Now there is a learning curve. I like this text here, and it means more than just learning curve, but cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a serving to seven and also to eight, for you don't know what evil will be on the earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know what is the way of the wind, or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening do not withhold your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Can you see soul winning in that text? Yeah, amen. Behold, I will send for many fishers, says Jeremiah sixteen sixteen, saith the Lord, and they will fish them. And after that, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain, from every hill, and out of the holes of the rocks. So God's call is for each of us. Now, giving a Bible study isn't the only way for us to heed God's call, right? Some people have more of the gift of teaching than others, Right? One of the benefits of the belief that traditional public evangelism doesn't work anymore is that people have been experimenting with a lot of other kinds of things. That's been a benefit, but I'm here to tell you this morning that public evangelism still works. Amazing Facts Ministry is built largely upon the idea that, that it still works, and I know it works. We, uh, at Ama- when I was at Amazing Facts, we evaluated evangelists' effectiveness based upon the baptism rate of the opening night's non-Adventist attendance. And if it wasn't at least 20%, we figured, well, this person needs some more training or something's going on. So, the uh, the idea that public evangelism and Uh, personal evangelism, like doing Bible studies. It may sound old-fashioned, but it works. It indeed works. Now, I'll claim something that maybe some of you don't believe here, but I hope you'll believe it by the end of this seminar. I believe that every single one of you can give a Bible study. Amen. I believe that whether you're highly gifted with the, with the spiritual gift of teaching or not, you can still give a Bible study. Today we really have very few excuses because most of the evangelists have their tapes and their CDs and everything available and anybody can be somebody else's friend, right? You can go in with somebody else's teaching and just be a friend with that person. So I don't think any of us um, cannot experience the joy uh, and the rewards of giving a personal Bible study. And you know, another thing I believe that I'm not even above guilting you into doing it even though I know guilt is not a very, very good long-term motivator, but the reason why I, I'm, I'm willing to use even guilt is because if you experience it, it will become a lifetime passion. So even when the guilt quits being the motivator, your motivator will be, I just love doing this, and that's a motivator. Your love for Jesus spreads to a love for other people, and he gives you a a passion for it, and he gives you a burden for the lost that you only get by participating in his joy. Well, what happens when we don't heed the call? Remember I said I'm not above guilt? Here's the guilt part, and then we'll be done with the guilt. When professed Christians feel no burden to enlighten those in darkness, when they cease to impart grace and knowledge, they become what? Less discerning. Less discerning. They lose the appreciation of the richness of the heavenly endowment. Because of neglected opportunities and of privileges, the members of these churches are what? They're not growing in grace and in the abundance of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 3.18 referenced. Therefore, they are what? Weak in faith, deficient in knowledge, and children in experience. They're not rooted and grounded in the truth. If they remain thus, the many delusions of the last days will surely deceive them, for they will have no spiritual eyesight to distinguish truth from error. So what happens when we don't witness? It's a long list of things that we probably can identify as problems in some of our churches, right? But let's turn it around the other way. What happens when we do witness? Look at this list. We gain discernment. We appreciate the riches of heaven. We grow in grace and knowledge of Christ. We're strengthened in our faith. We gain spiritual knowledge. We become more mature in experience. We become rooted and grounded in truth. We're protected from the delusions of the last days. And we gain spiritual eyesight to distinguish truth from error. But most of all, (laughs) we participate in the joy of Jesus. What was it that was shown to Jesus just before he went to the cross that strengthened him? He was shown a picture of those that would be saved as a result of what he was about to do. So we share in the joy of Jesus and you will develop friendships, lifetime friendships that will be closer and more endearing perhaps, and more more precious and treasured than maybe you've ever experienced before. That's a pretty good list, isn't it? Pretty good incentive. So why aren't we, as a church, Now, I'm not identifying, I'm not saying we here as an audience, uh, many of you may be giving Bible studies. In fact, let let me see, how many of you currently have an active Bible study with a non-Adventist? Would you raise your hand? Looks to be maybe just shy of a half, half of us. Okay, that's great. Praise the Lord. So for the rest of you, the title of this talk is How to Give a Better Bible Study. If you could just be talked into giving a Bible study, then there you have it. There's a better Bible study, right? So why aren't we fulfilling the commission, heeding the call? Well, I think for a lot of people, It's fear. It's fear. What are we afraid of? Well, rejection. That's not pleasant, is it? Anyone here, raise your hand if you like being rejected. There's not a hand. No one likes rejection. Being made to look foolish. That's not very pleasant either. Ridicule. Afraid of what other people might think. Maybe we're afraid of shortchanging the cause of Christ, or maybe the thinking is, I don't really have anything to offer. I'm not an expert. Well, when you, <laughs> when we're really honest with ourselves and look at this list, who are we focusing on? It's selfishness that keeps us from, from uh, participating in winning souls for Christ. So if we're afraid of things, what is it that overcomes fear? First John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect fear casts out love, or casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. So what overcomes fear? Love for Jesus, love for the lost, training helps, Experience helps. How do you gain experience? You go do it, (laughs) you gain experience. But there's something that the Savior did. What was that that helps with fear? He sent out people two by two. My wife is fearless when it comes to meeting new people. So when we were at AFCO getting our training and we would go out, she was my partner. And that worked out pretty good for me because I usually would let her do the spiritual interest surveys for about the first hour. And then finally I'd get up my nerve and then pretty soon I'm participating and enjoying it. But if any kind of a gap in time would pass by, I'd kind of rely upon my wife. She'd go up there and she'd do them and then I'd finally gain the courage. Christ knew that some of us are introverts. He says, go out two by two. Two people that complement each other are always going to be stronger than a person by themselves. Amen? So if you're fearful, find a partner. What is our gospel commission? You all know this. But let me just reshare it. Matthew twenty eight, nineteen through twenty says, Go therefore and do what? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and what? Teaching them them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, did he just tack on that? Or was that a special promise to those that are out trying to fulfill the gospel commission? If you're working for Jesus, it says, I'm going to be with you. Now, he's with all of his people, right? Mm -hmm. So this is like just an extra frosting on the cake kind of promise. I will, maybe I shouldn't add a word, but I will especially be with you if you're going and teaching and baptizing, okay? If you're fulfilling the gospel commission, Jesus will be with you. You have nothing to be afraid of. So what were Jesus' metaphors about sharing? I will make you fishers of men. And then what was the other metaphor? Farming, right? He talked a lot about harvest. Remember in John four where he says, lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they are already white for what? Harvest. Harvest, Jesus is looking forward to the harvest Now, if you think about those metaphors, there's actually a lot we can learn in terms of giving Bible studies. If you want to be a good fisherman, what do you need to do? You need to have some fishing equipment, right? You need a knowledge of fish. What do you think? Will that help? And what about a strategy and technique? Sure, sure. They're all involved. When I was a kid, uh, my parents went to visit uh, an elder uncle that lived in Minnetonka Bay, Minnesota. And uh, the the lake was right out in front of his house. My brother and I asked if we could go fishing. And my uncle says, yes, there's there's a rowboat down there by the dock, that's mine, you can feel free to use it. That's fishing equipment, right? He said, there's bamboo poles out in the garage, that's fishing equipment, right? He said, if you go out to the railroad tracks behind my house there, you'll find a bunch of little tiny frogs. Just cut them in half, put them on the hook. They make great bait. So there you have some bait, right? Okay, so he gave us a strategy. He acquainted us with the equipment. We never had so much fun in our lives. I mean, the, the, the hook would barely touch the water and we'd have a fish. The whole boat, bottom of the boat was full of fish. I don't know if Minnetonka Bay is still like that, but. All right, so fishing equipment. Let's think about fishing equipment a moment. What, what is your fishing equipment? What do you need? Well, you need some kind of Bible study, right? Okay, could be something you wrote yourself. Could be something you got from Seminars Unlimited or Amazing Facts or, you know. All the media ministries, I think, have a set of Bible studies, okay? So, you you know, look through them, find something that's, uh, you know, you have to fight in your own armor, so find something that fits well with you and in your, in your style and the way you wanna do it. Um, you can do topical Bible studies. You can do thematic. You can s- concentrate on a book like the book of John or, you know, even Genesis, you can teach The whole Adventist message out of the book of Genesis. You need a Bible. Now I'm going to make some recommendations about a Bible. Don't go in there to your Bible study with your Ellen G. White Study Bible, okay? (laughs) You will have some things where people will tend to say, well, my Bible says this and what they're doing is looking at study notes. And people have a hard time sometimes distinguishing between what's God's word and what's man's word. So you don't want to compound it by having your own study Bible with you. So my recommendation is just take a a plain Jane Bible, not a study Bible. Um, I would also recommend that you not use the NIV. Now, the NIV is a great readable book. I mean, it's... It's so readable that it's become a favorite of many Adventists, and I don't, I'm not going to argue with anyone that that's their favorite Bible. I have no problem with that, but you'll find issues using it as a Bible study book, okay? So my recommendation is to uh, probably use a New King James Version. It's probably the one that you have the least problems with. If you want another uh, Interestingly enough, you'll have less problems with the NASB than you'll have with the NIV, okay? And that's really a a Catholic Bible. But the NIV evangelical think set comes through too often in some of your key texts. Uh, And you'll, you'll find some issues with that. Now, in terms of the person you're studying with, let them study out of their own Bible. That's much better, don't try to persuade them, don't even get involved in the issue of what kind of Bible, okay? This, these are just recommendations for you. Now, if you come across an unclear passage that they're reading from their Bible, then I often will say, oh, that's interesting that it, that it uh, says it that way, let me read to you what it says from the New King James Version or whatever version I'm using, and then I'll just reread it. Um, also, I recommend that you actually use a physical Bible and not the Bible on your phone or your computer. And the reason why I say that is is as you do your Bible studies, the repetition of going over those texts over and over with different people at different times, you're going to cement into your mind where that, that text is. You're going to remember that a certain text is in the left side of your, of your Bible about two-thirds of the way down and you've got it highlighted. Your mind takes pictures of these things and it will help you to find things. You have no kind of reference like that on your phone. Now, I use my phone to, to, you know, when I'm in a Bible study often to find a text that I, I can't remember where it's at, but I think it's good to read. That's just my recommendation. Um, I think having a projector is great if you have a group Bible study. Uh, it really helps people, it, it helps you to keep people on track. It helps you to keep people focused. Um, a lot of times in a Bible study, especially early on, you'll have people wanting to go off on rabbit trails, rabbit chases. And having a projector and a screen will help you to uh, regain uh, kind of some directional. Uh, Maintain the direction in your Bible study. But it's not necessary. Don't feel like if I don't have a projector, I can't have a group Bible study. Uh, many times I've had a group, and, and I have my laptop in the corner of a table, and you, there's people sitting all around the table. So, you know, none of these things need to be barriers to doing it, but they're helpful if you have, uh, if you have the resource available to you. Um, I, do, I do like to use a laptop even on a one-to-one, one-to-one Bible study because often when you read a text to somebody, you say, "Well, let's uh, let's go to whatever," and you read the, and, and you share the text with them. Uh, what will people often say? Now, what book were you were you just saying? And then they find the book. Well, what chapter was it? Oh, what verse is it? And they get embarrassed by having to ask those questions over and over, but if it's right on your screen and they can just look up at your screen when they need, when they need that refresher, it's, it's easier for them, more comfortable for them. So I like to do it that way, but again, it's not necessary. We need a knowledge of fish, right? I don't know if those of you that haven't been doing Bible studies recently realize this, but let me tell you, my experience very strongly is that people are hungry for a system of truth. They are hungry for an explanation of Bible prophecy. One of the reactions to many churches after the Great Disappointment was just to give up on the study of prophecy. And then what little there is out there, there's all kinds of different definitions. So, so many people just think it's all a bunch of opinions. And so when they see a system of truth that's based completely upon the Bible that makes sense to them, that has a powerful appeal. And people are hungry for that. Many Christians don't know really what they believe or why they believe it. Their ideas have been assembled kind of cafeteria style. Well, this is something my parents believed. I've not found any reason to disbelieve it, so yeah, I believe that. And there's this preacher I really like, and he said this, and that made sense to me, and so yeah, I I believe this. And a lot of times their beliefs don't align in any way with the actual the, 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 the denomination they happen to be a member of. So when people can see a system of truth that's all anchored upon the Bible that makes sense to them and one thing fits together with the other, that has a powerful appeal, brothers and sisters. And as a result of that, they will compliment you profusely. They'll say, you have so much knowledge. Don't accept those compliments because it's not you. God has gifted us with extraordinary light. He, he's given us this light because he knew the world would be dark at this time and very confusing and a lot of people convinced like Pilate was well, who can really know what truth is so what do fish like to eat where do they, when do they eat, where do they hide what are they attracted to what do they need we can apply all that stuff to learning about giving Bible studies amen Uh, Do we fish from the shore or a boat? What time of day to fish? The type of bait, the depth of the bait, the setting, the hook, the landing of the fish. Anyone can do it, but there is a place for training and time to gain some experience. The training and experience helps you to refine your strategy and your techniques and makes you a better tool in the hands of God. What about farming? It was amazing to me how often this would come up in strategy planning at Amazing packs. Because we all learn to ask the question, well, is this idea, is this seed sowing? Or is this idea related to harvesting, okay? Now, if you go out and you're just passing out some literature door to door, what would that be? Sewing. If somebody asks you a very specific question, but in the way that they asked it, you know you're not gonna engage them in a whole topical series of Bible studies, but you were able to get them involved in, well, let's see what the Bible has to say about that, and you had a one-on-one Bible study with them. What are you doing? Seed sowing, right? There's some Bible studies that that's your only objective, sowing seed. There's others that you know that, well, the fruit is ripe, and the objective is to lead them into the full light of truth. So with sowing, you're preparing the soil. You're sowing the seed. The Holy Spirit waters the seed. There's weeding and there's cultivating. And then with the harvest, when do you harvest? When the fruit is what? When it's ripe. So there's this idea of bringing in the harvest and then when the harvest is in, what still needs to happen? You have to protect the harvest. Brothers and sisters, it's my belief that as a church, we're pretty good about evangelism but maybe not so good about the idea of protecting the harvest. I don't know how many of you have shared the experience that I've had where you work with somebody for a year and a half and they decide to completely embrace the truth and they're baptized and you come into potluck and they're sitting all by themselves in a corner. Maybe we're not so good about protecting the harvest. Okay, we consider ourselves friendly, but all, we have to remember that those people left their whole social system behind. Yeah. They're now in a completely new environment. And what do they need more than anything else? Friendship. Friendship. That's right. Studies bear that out very strongly. All right, so I, I think I invented this word. I don't know. Maybe I didn't. Maybe I saw it somewhere. Discipleology, what does that mean? What's ology? When you tack ology onto the end of the word, what does that mean? The study of, the study of making disciples. Discipleology, what do you think? The science of making disciples for Jesus. So how did Jesus make disciples? This is an oft-quoted passage from the Ministry of Healing Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior did what? He mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them. He ministered to their needs and what? Won their confidence. Only then did he say what? (laughs) Follow me. Follow me there's a prescription for us to follow, amen? Amen. Now, think about how health evangelism follows this method, right? This is why it's commended to us as being a right arm, for being able to propagate the three angels' messages. So it's a method that opens doors wins confidence, shows people you're interested and you care about them. Okay, Jesus' method alone, he mingled, he showed people he desired their good, he showed sympathy, he ministered to their needs, he won their confidence, and then he said, follow me. So what do you think would be a good plan for doing a Bible study based upon this method? My thinking is, You share the things that you're in agreement with, with the person you're studying with, until you've won their confidence, until you have a close friendship with them. Amen? Amen. Do you think that would be a good strategy? Indeed. Now, what is our mission as a church? Okay, I agree with all that. So far I haven't heard the answer I'm looking for though. <laughs> to glorify God. The three angels' messages. We have a special mission to spread the three angels' messages. Now, some of us, our mouth might have gone dry at the mention of the three angels' messages. But perhaps that's because we think of it as a bunch of complicated doctrines. What's the first part of the first angel's message? The everlasting gospel. That's right. It's all about righteousness by faith. And it's the first part of the first message for a good reason. Because until somebody understands that, there's no point in what? doing anything else. That's right, sister. That's right, there's no point. The everlasting gospel, the three angels' messages are all about righteousness by faith. Now, none of us like to fail, right? So what I did is I made a list of everything I could think of that has caused failure to me in the past or that I saw uh, cause failure in other people. Um, one would be going for the head. What do I mean by that? Because later on I'm going to say you should appeal to the intelligence of your listeners. (laughs) It sounds like a conflict. So why do I say going for the head? Because in my experience, in the past, many times I thought, The Adventist system of truth is so beautiful that if they only saw it, they couldn't help but believe. What's the fallacy? I was focused on communicating truth and not so much on first developing the relationship. That's right. That's right, going for the head. That's what I mean by going for the head. I want to be right, arguing. Now, if you argue, who's in charge? I am. I just failed at being a tool for the Holy Spirit if I'm caught up in an argument, right? You will accomplish nothing with arguing. Don't do it. I want to make somebody into somebody like me. Ever seen that happen? (laughs) Uh, Inaction. Lack of follow-through. Not taking it seriously. Now, one of the things I'm going to recommend is do not cancel on your Bible studies. Plan your personal schedule around that appointment. You made a commitment to that person. Do not cancel. Unless it's your funeral. <laughs> Do not cancel. They'll cancel often enough. <sighs> lack of prayer, lack of preparation. Boy, have I seen this one. If I'm coming up on something that I know, I have to say. Some, I, I feel like I need to say something this week to this person. What should I be doing all that week before that Bible study? I should be in prayer. I should be soliciting the prayers of other people. Amen? Amen. Pray, 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 pray. You can't pray for that person enough. Too much, too soon. (laughs) When I was at AFCO, uh, we would, uh, before going out two two by two, and finding Bible study leads, and then starting Bible studies, uh, then we would come back afterwards, and we'd share our experiences. And what a joy it is to hear other people's uh, faith-sharing experiences—hearing how people have come to Christ, or how they've embraced something new, or whatever. It's just—it's—it's it's thrilling to hear. But I remember in one of the um, one of those uh, uh, testimony kind of things that we did there were a group of, of two young guys and they came back and they said, yeah, we did a five-hour Bible study. We went through this and this and this and this and this. How long do you think that Bible study lasted? <laughs> Not very long. Too much, too soon is an issue and we'll come back to that later. The plan of Christ's teaching should be ours. He was plain and simple, striking directly at the root of the matter and the minds of... All were met. Gospel workers, page 376. So discipleology. Since the first thing we need to do is what? Is win hearts. Then maybe it would be helpful for us to spend a little time thinking about how to do that. First thing, agree with people whenever you can. Sometimes there's a temptation when people say things, to feel a need to correct it. But that doesn't follow this mantra of agreeing with people whenever you can, right? Maybe the rapture will happen soon. Well, uh, you know, here's what the Bible has to say about that. No, agree with people in whatever way you can. You know, naturally, it's the great Christian hope, Christ's return. We're all looking forward to that. Isn't that, won't won't that be a wonderful day? You have that belief in common with them, right? Share what you have in common with them early on. Don't disagree, because that tends to be disagreeable. I'm so thankful that mom is in heaven now. What can you say about that? I'm so thankful, Mom, and is in heaven now. It's the great Christian hope to meet our loved ones again in the presence of Jesus, right? There's lots of things we can say that, it, that puts us more in agreement with them than in the disagreement with them, right? Okay? Don't win debates. Win what? Friends. Evangelism 141 agree with the people on every point where you can consistently do so. Let them see that you love their souls and want to be in harmony with them as far as possible. Give approval whenever you can. Did Jesus do that? He did. So giving approval is following Jesus' method. What she has done will be told in memory of her, Jesus said. O woman, great is your faith, Jesus said. You could say, you ask great questions. I love how deep and considerate you are. There's all kinds of things that you can say, but of course, be sincere. People have a pretty good sniffer for detecting insincerity, okay? Your success will not depend so much upon your knowledge and accomplishments as upon your ability to what? Find your way to the heart. AND THEN THIRDLY, IN TERMS OF WINNING THROUGH FRIENDSHIP, ACCEPT PEOPLE WHERE THEY ARE. DID JESUS ACCEPT THE WOMAN CAUGHT IN ADULTERY? HE DID. WHAT ABOUT THE THIEF ON THE CROSS? WHAT ABOUT THE WOMAN WHO TOUCHED THE HEM OF HIS GARMENT? WHAT ABOUT YOUR OWN EXPERIENCE? REMEMBER ACCEPTANCE does not equal approval, okay? You can accept someone where they are even though you may not approve of something in their lifestyle. Ask yourself, will my behavior win their hearts in love so that they will be more likely to accept Christ as their personal Savior? Jesus accepts us where we are Can we not accept anyone that he died for in the same way he accepts us? Now, when you start a new Bible study, what is the first unwritten dynamic that's going on between you and that person that you're getting acquainted with? What are they assessing in you? They're assessing can I trust this person? Does this person truly love me? Do they accept me? Will they be critical and judgmental of me? They wanna feel safe, okay? Your job in the beginning is to do that, is to build that trust. That's part of that idea of winning their confidence. Are you trying to turn them into you? And remember, the goal isn't necessarily to move everyone to the end of a scale. Think of people as somewhere on a a spiritual scale of zero spiritual interest to maybe a 10. If somebody that you meet is at a two, maybe your goal is simply to move them to a three or four. If you meet somebody and they're maybe at a seven, your goal might be to take them to a 10. Okay, it depends on where people are, all right? So if somebody is a baby, what do you feed babies? That's right. I just paused because I wanted us to let that sink in a little bit. Because often there's a distance between here and here or between here and what we actually do, okay? So we all, when well, that makes sense. If somebody's a baby Christian, you don't feed them adult Christian food, right? You feed them baby food. People that are drug really addicts and alcoholics, bring, so a lot Meet them where they are. Just try to move them to a higher point on the spiritual scale. That might be your only objective with them, right? It might simply be seed sowing. You're not looking for a harvest with that person, perhaps, okay? Babies need milk, and remember this, it's important what we say, how we say it, and when we say it, okay? There's three common errors in that respect. We can say the right word in the right way at the wrong time, the right word in the wrong way at the right time, or the wrong word in the right way at the right time. I had to read that or I would have been thoroughly confused. So it's important what we say, how we say it, what we're saying between the lines, and when we say it. So we establish a common bond with the other person by showing concern for them. Now, can you show concern for them by never allowing them to talk? (laughs) All right. You look at the person as a human being, not as your witnessing project, right? (laughs) And then you discover the other person's interests. Now, you can do that. This is why I like to do Bible studies in the other person's home, because if you look around their home, you're going to find a lot about that person and what their interests are just by looking around at what's on the walls and what's in their bookshelf and, and so forth. So the next part of Discipleology is teaching them to observe all things. Now, I want to talk a little bit about, I'm sorry? I was just saying it's all. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about the type of Bible studies. Now, you know what a drop-off Bible study is? (laughs) This is where you can't get somebody to invite you into their home or they won't come into your home. Uh, but yet they seem a little bit open. So you kind of do the best thing you can and you drop off a Bible study. Now, I've done, I'm guessing hundreds, I don't know, maybe thousands. I've done lots of drop-off Bible studies and I've never seen any fruit from it. Granted, it's seed sowing. And I pray for those seeds. The Holy Spirit will water them but I've never seen any results. But from a sit-down Bible study, there's a percentage of the time that's very predictable that that person's gonna go all the way and they're gonna be baptized and you're gonna be sitting next to them and you're gonna help them learn how to do Bible study with somebody else, okay? Sit-down Bible studies are far more powerful, but why? Why does a drop-off Bible study not produce much fruit? All right, you guys got it. It's the relationship that's missing. So if you're doing a, drop down, uh, a drop-off Bible study, what your goal is, is to try to get acquainted with that person, okay? Maybe you say, hey, this next lesson is really exciting. I love this next lesson. Can we do it together, okay? And then you watch the video together or whatever. Okay, drop-off Bible studies. They can be written, video, um, at one point, I thought, oh, I need to ramp up these, the effectiveness of drop-off Bible studies, and I was doing drop-off you know, written ones, and I thought, well, I'm gonna make copies of Millennium of Prophecy. I had copies up the wazoo, and I was handing those things out, and I thought, oh, this is gonna change it all. It didn't. Sit down Bible studies is obviously what I recommend. Groups. Now, groups are pretty cool because the time that you spend might, you might have a limited amount of time to spend doing Bible studies. And doesn't it make sense to leverage that time by saying, well, would I rather use that time with one person or with five people? It just has a natural appeal, right? But understand there's some particular dynamics that you need to be aware of with, with the difference between the two. In a one-on-one sit-down Bible study, it's a lot easier for you to figure out when somebody's convicted over something. It's a lot easier for you to figure out when they're understanding and when they're not understanding. It's a lot easier for you to figure out this whole pressure release tactic, okay? All these things are much easier in the, in the dynamic of a one to one Bible study. And... Here's another thing. In a one-to-one, maybe every three or four texts, the person just can't find the text. It takes a long time, okay? But one-on-one, you multiply that times the number of texts you're going through in a Bible study, maybe you've added a few minutes. But and when you've got a group, you've got five people, and each of those five, every third text, they have a hard time finding it, There are a lot longer Bible studies. So you either need to take more time for them, or you need to reduce the number of texts, or you need to put some of the text on the screen, or whatever, and by the way, I like people to look up the text in their own Bible and read it in the Bible study. To me, that's more powerful. Okay, but in a group Bible study, often I resort to putting the text on a slide. I have the person still read it, but it's on the slide. It saves a whole lot of time when you're waiting for five people to look up something as opposed to one person to look up something. And if you get to bigger groups like 10, forget it. You've got to have almost every text on screen. Okay? So those are some tips for sit down versus group. But there's also some beautiful dynamics in the group experience as well. Sometimes people in the group, maybe it's somebody that you are having a you're struggling a a little bit with really syncing with that person, but they just jive with somebody that's sitting next to them in the group. And so they help each other through the process because it's the relationships that help people through difficult uh, difficulties in the Bible study. And then there can be the seminar-style Bible study. I know some of you uh, have conducted seminars Now in terms of type of sit down studies, it can be a video, a fill in the blank, written type thing, uh, a Bible marking. Um, I like to do PowerPoint. I like to do a question and answer thing where you ask a question and then you display a text. Well, this is where we'll find the answer to this question and you go to the text and you talk about it a little bit, explain it, go to the next question. I think it's really powerful. Answering difficult questions. Well, one way to handle that is, well, what do you think about that? Very often what I found, (laughs) early on I thought I always had to answer every question. Um, But what what I found is that often the person knows the answer. Maybe they're not sure of it, or maybe they're testing you or whatever, but It often works really well to just say, "Well, what do you think is the answer to that?" I think that's a pretty powerful response. Um, Sometimes people will ask you questions that, man, you just you just don't want to get into them right now. It may be the first time you've studied with somebody, and they're asking you about tongues or the rapture or who's the Antichrist or whatever. And you know, how do you deal with that? Well, one one thing that I usually do is I say, you know, there's a study coming up on that. Is it okay if we wait till we come to that study? And most of the time people accept that. Now occasionally someone doesn't. There was a Mrs. G I studied with and she had one thing on her mind. She wanted to know about the Sabbath. And you know, I I said, well we've got to study on that. Let's do these other studies first. And she only studied twice. She dropped out because I wasn't listening. She was determined. That's what she wanted to start a study with. Because I didn't do it, I I lost the study. How do you distinguish the difference? The difference between what? Whether whether you could urge them to wait until the study comes? If I say, well, we've got a study coming up on that, and they say, okay, that's great, well, then you, you, know, you can bypass it for now. But well, boy, mark it down and make sure you do come back to it. That's a good question. All right, avoiding common mistakes, arguing. Again, who's in control when you're arguing? Before the Bible study, what did you plead for? That you would be a tool of the Holy Spirit, right? And the minute you are arguing, you're no longer that tool, are you? Don't argue. You can't accomplish anything. By the way, how powerful are your words anyway? Not. They're not at all powerful. Where's the power come from in the Bible study? It's God's words. It's God's words. They're watered by the Holy Spirit, but the, the power is in the word of God. It's already there. He doesn't have to add anything to his words. They're there already. It's, the power is already in the promises of God. Okay. Um, thinking you need to answer every question. I used to raise my hand at AFCO all the time, and I'd say, now, Gary, what if somebody asked me this? And he'd laugh. He'd say, Steve, people won't ask you that. Well, it turned out he was right. You know, you don't have to know every single thing before you give a Bible study. Most people aren't going to ask you. And if they do ask you a question you don't know, you say, you know, I don't know that, but I certainly will study into that, and I'll try to have an answer when, when we study next time. People are very open to that and they don't don't want you to come off like you're some big expert anyway. You're friends, you're sharing, okay? Uh, Too many texts. (laughs) Uh, How many of you are analytics here? There's a few people that will admit to it, all right? You will tend to put too many texts in your Bible studies, okay? You don't need every single text there is on a given subject, okay? (laughs) Um, communicating on things only known in the spirit of prophecy. <laughs> I was doing a, a group Bible study uh, with some, uh, some people that were uh, n- not yet part of the church, and, uh, but had gone through Bible studies. And I happened to say something about a winged snake in the Garden of Eden. And uh, Larry C. came up afterwards. I'm, just, I'm not identifying people by name because I guess this is being recorded and I don't have their permission to use their names. So, Larry C. came up afterwards and he says, where in the Bible does it say the snake was winged? Uh, uh-oh. I says, I says, Larry, you know, I'm gonna have to look that up and I'll get back with you. Unfortunately, I found a text that said the, the snake, uh, it, it, it implied the snake had wings. To my knowledge, there's no text that just makes it, you know, black and white, the snake had wings. That's something we know because Spirit of Prophecy tells us that, okay? So be careful about that. Canceling. <laughs> How often are you allowed to cancel? <laughs> Please don't cancel. You will lose a Bible study. You will lo- Satan is looking for every opportunity to head this thing off, and you just gave him one by canceling a Bible study. Try your best to never cancel. And that's really difficult when, you're, when a Bible study crosses over the holidays, okay? Because between Thanksgiving and New Year's, there's so many things going on. There's so many obstacles. Um, but try not to, to cancel if you can all avoid it. Getting into controversial subjects too, too early. Before that person trusts you, you want to avoid like the plague anything that's going to be a test for them, okay? Until they trust you. Until they've come to understand that nothing you say hangs on one text. In fact, I make a practice, if we read something and somebody says, you know, I don't really see that in the text. I'll say, okay, well, let's see if we can find that same idea somewhere else and just go to another text. Don't argue with somebody about whether something's in a text or not. Okay, And after a while, they'll quit challenging you because, and when they do, then you realize they trust you. Okay, They trust this process that you're building foundations and understanding of truth systematically and everything is built upon the Bible. Nothing is personal in, uh, opinion. Nothing is outside of bible inspiration uh don't argue about a proof text i just said that if they don't agree with a text just go to another one don't get ahead of your studies now when you first start out you may not understand why certain things are given in, certain, in, a, in, a, in a certain order. But after you've done it for a while, you realize well, this study is building a foundation for this study, and this study is building a foundation for this study, and this study is building a foundation for this study. So if you're jumping ahead and trying to answer somebody's question, well, do they have the foundations for them to even understand that yet? They do not. So don't, don't get ahead of yourself if you can avoid it. Truth is progressive. Don't give materials for future lessons. I have a, a, a series of Bible studies that, that I did in collaboration with another pastor and my wife. It's called Keys of the Kingdom. It's Daniel and Revelation. But it's a kind of a unique way of doing Daniel and Revelation. Uh, we, we take a key from, from every chapter and uh, use that and we're building a very, every, every lesson has a like a personal application. Um, I forgot why I started that. Don't give materials for future lessons. Every lesson has a written lesson and I give the lesson, uh, the written lesson for the study that we just did at the end of that study. Mm-hmm. Don't give them a head. somebody had their hand up. That's my recommendation, yeah. But they're supposed to ask the questions they had Yeah, but the problem is, when they get to some testing truth, then you're not there to help them through the process. There's a dissonance that's created in people's mind when they come up to some information that they can't relate to what else they know, okay? And it's the friendship that helps get them through the process. If you're not there and they're reading something that becomes a test for them, that's gonna be an issue. I recommend against it. Well, if, it, uh, if it's not created a problem for you, you have to fight in your own armor. It's just my, my recommendations. Don't give material for future lessons. Uh, don't give full message books too early. Okay, Wait until you've already covered the subjects that are in that book before you give them the book. Avoiding common mistakes. Be positive without being pushy. Don't waste time with someone who is trying to convert you to their religion or just wants to argue. I used to participate in prison ministry uh, outside of El Dorado, Kansas. And uh, what I found pretty quickly is the prisoners, they'll go to any Bible study because they don't have anything else to do. And they really study their Bibles and they're very knowledgeable. But for some of them, it has nothing to do with the love for Christ. It has everything to do with them just feeling good about getting into some intellectualism kind of a thing. And so it kind of discouraged me against that kind of ministry. I know that's a powerful ministry, and there's many people, won through prison ministries. But my experience wasn't good uh, because I, I had a lot of people that just simply wanted to argue. Uh, don't stay too long. Now, with you extroverts, this will be where you'll be challenged because you will be enjoying the Bible study, you're enjoying the friendship, and you'll want to make a day out of it. And the people will encourage it because they're enjoying you too. But guess what will happen? The next time that they have to set aside some time for the study, they're going to say, I don't have three hours. And they'll cancel okay so even though you will be naturally inclined to have long Bible studies my recommendation don't do it when that hour is up you leave be on time leave on time that's my strong recommendation Uh, don't underestimate the time it takes to unlearn something be patient and plan to repeat over and over oh boy have I been slow in learning this one I can't tell you how many times I've been tempted to think, we already studied that. What are they asking this question for? <laughs> in fact, we studied it three times. <laughs> Do not underestimate the, the, the difficulty in unlearning something so that you can absorb something new. It takes time, it takes repetition, What i found, some people really need to hear the full message three times before they really understand it. Some people more than that. Um, Be positive without being pushy. I thought I did that. Somehow I went backwards. Uh, Call for decisions in each Bible study. Uh, this was a challenge to me because as I was participating in the writing of the keys to the kingdom, I'm Daniel Owen. Well, what's, what's the commitment there? Well, there is one. If you think hard and fast, you can come up with something they can commit to. Giving your heart to Jesus. Can they commit to that? Do they know Jesus well enough to give their heart? Whatever. You can think of all kinds of things for every single lesson. It doesn't have to be a commitment to, uh, are you gonna start keeping the Sabbath? I'm, I'm not talking about that comes maybe later, but there's lots of other kinds of commitments you can ask people for. You should have a commitment for every lesson because otherwise, when you do come to something that's a testing truth and you ask for a commitment, and that, well, that's out of the norm. You never asked me that before. But if they're used to you asking a commitment every single lesson, then that's not gonna seem abnormal. Okay. Every single lesson. Ask for some kind of a decision to be made. Pressure. Avoiding common mistakes. Pressure. What do I mean by that? Does that mean you should never put anybody under any kind of pressure? It does not mean that, but <clears throat> there's a tactic of pressure and release, pressure and release, knowing how much pressure, when, they, when not to pressure them, and, and, and what it is that you're saying that could be pressure. Okay. Um, if you're constantly putting pressure on somebody, that's not friendship evangelism, and it's not gonna work for most people. All right, here's a difficult one. <laughs> uh, knowing when to quit. Now what, do I, what I mean, I don't mean quit an individual study, but I mean quit doing a Bible study with a person. How do you know when to do that? I don't know when to do that. I've struggled with that. David L. I thought was a big waste of my time because he was way out away from all. This was when I was working as a Bible worker and I had 30 to 32 Bible studies a week. And uh, David L. lived way up north of, of Wichita. And it uh, took me a long time to get there and then he was constantly falling asleep. It got to where we would go out and walk down the road with, the, with our Bibles, doing the Bible study with my thinking, well, I can't fall asleep while he's walking. <laughs> This guy was so frustrating. And then he was uh, somewhat disabled, and he he wasn't employed during the day, and so he was studying with everybody that would study with him. And he would get confused as to who was teaching what. He'd say, well, you told me that, Dave, that that wasn't me. (laughs) And I just thought, I'm just wasting my time. And I put it to prayer, and I was praying to God, God, help me to figure out what to do with this study. I think I should cancel it. God had other plans. God inspired me to challenge David, to, to, to ask him, David, I want you to commit to studying only with me and cancel all your other Bible studies. And that's my request, that you give that some thought and some prayer. Came back to the next study, he says, I canceled all my other Bible studies. I thought, wow. That was a God thing. It was almost a year after that that David was baptized. Later on, his wife was baptized. And I was talking to David at church one day, and he says, yeah, he says, "Uh, there's this good friend of mine, uh, Larry C. He, He has a, he's the, he's the, the C air conditioning business here in Wichita. I mean, this guy is influential and wealthy, he knows everybody, and so I gave him the 27 Fundamental Doctrines book. <laughs> oh, I thought. It's not the book I would have chosen, but. But Larry C. and his wife and two daughters were baptized. Larry C. went out, he was really active with giving Bible studies. He was giving Bible studies to his employees, many of whom were baptized. He started a ministry there in, in, uh, I guess I'm identifying who he is by just saying where he's at and everything, but he started a ministry outside of Wichita where there was like a, a center where people that were burned out could come to and kind of get rejuvenated. And I'm thinking, God, I'm, I'm glad you knew the future because I didn't, I was going to cancel on David. So how to know when to cancel? I would pray about it. Because many times after that, because then that's when I decided I will never cancel Bible study. But when I felt that they were a waste of time, I would pray, God, bring this Bible study to an end if this is a waste of my time, and Just like that, every time God would cause something to happen, Bible study be off the table. I just let God take care of it. That's my recommendation. We're not wise enough to know these things. Here's another recommendation. (laughs) Do not answer questions except from the Bible. Your word has no power. And if you, if, they, if, if you have a habit of just answering their questions, they're gonna think it's all just opinion anyway. What better, how better is your opinion than someone else's? So every time that they ask a question, you go to the Bible and you answer their question out of the Bible. I can't recommend that more strongly. So some be sure to do's, we talked about some be sure to do not. Here's some be sure to do's. In the beginning, you're just building trust. So keep that in mind. Work on building trust. And remember, it's not what you say that's important. What's important is only what God says. Another thing is look for conviction. Sometimes we fail to close the sale because we don't realize when somebody's ready, okay? Of course, the converse is true as well. How do you know when somebody's convicted? I was studying with a young fellow that was doing engineering studies there in Wichita, and he was from India, and well, I guess if he's Indian, he's from India. Uh, That's redundant, but anyway. um, we're doing these studies and he's like eating them up and it's like it was fun to study with him because he was always so expressive of this joy and learning these things. We came to the Sabbath and all of a sudden his whole demeanor changed. Man, he is fidgeting about. and He's moving around in his chair. He doesn't say a word. His expression has changed. What was I seeing there? He'd already been convicted on the Sabbath before we ever started our studies. Okay. So learn to recognize and, and, and remember to look for conviction. Review the last lesson. At the beginning of each lesson, I like to take a few minutes and review what we discussed last time, maybe stressing the key points to see if they remember anything about it. <laughs> and if they, if they can't remember or, or if they're confused, don't hesitate to go back and redo that lesson. Okay. Remember, it takes a while to unlearn. It takes a while to learn something new. Um, Develop a technique for staying on track. I find that the the PowerPoint helps with that. At one point uh, when I was uh, teaching a New Believers class, I actually had a picture that I made of some train tracks. And when people would start going, up, uh, going off track, I'd reach over and I'd grab that picture and I'd hold that picture up. <laughs> so it doesn't matter. You know, again, fight in your own armor, but find some technique, some strategy that will help to get things back on track. Um, I use the term rabbit trail. And after people study with me for a while, they'll realize well, what I'm saying is, well, that's kind of off subject. Let's get back on track. Um, Begin and end on time. Appeal to the intelligence of the listener. Make practical applications in each lesson. Remember to define your terms. This is really important because most terms we use, Satan has very successfully redefined in the minds of a lot of people. Think about one of the most prominent terms there is within Christianity and that would be the word love. Now, what does love mean? It doesn't mean the same thing to every person. To some people, it equates to another word that we would call indulgence. To some people, indulgence is love. Now, to a person that has, that's their new definition of love, if you start speaking of God's justice, can they reconcile love and justice together if that's how they're defining love? They cannot. Don't underestimate how strongly important this is for you to spend enough time with people that the words that you're commonly using, you realize you're on the same page about what this word means. It's astonishing how many people don't, can't define gospel it's astonishing how many different interpretations there are for what righteousness by faith means or what baptism means or what tongues mean. We think we know, and somebody brings up the word tongues, we think we know what they're talking about, but I found it, it can mean different things to different people. So slow down and be sure that when you use a word that the other person is understanding the way you're using the word. Remember to define your terms. Make assignments with each lesson. One assignment I make a lot, especially when I'm studying with young people, is uh, learn the books of the Bible in order. Now, why do I make that assignment? It makes the Bible study go a lot smoother. That's one reason. But they're gonna benefit from it as well. And they're really proud when, you know, when they, they feel like they've really accomplished something when they, when they can do that. Uh, so I think that's a pretty good assignment. Another assignment is to read the, the written lesson that you just gave them, if it's your practice, to give them the lessons uh, that you just did. So don't be afraid of making assignments. Emphasize the literal interpretation. Sometimes we have a tendency to want to look at the original language and extract some additional meaning. And there's no question that often we can find deeper meanings by original language study, but in this Bible study, you don't need that, okay? You're usually not getting that deep with people, so seldom, there's occasionally, there's occasions where you you have to get to the original language, like upon this rock, I built my church. You know, there's, there's times when you need to use the original language, but it should be uh, not very often. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary literal meaning, said David Cooper in 1950. In The Great Controversy, it says similarly. The language of the Bible should be explained according to its obvious meaning unless a symbol or figure is employed. And the Bible says in Isaiah 28, uh, 28 verse 10, uh, switching gears a little bit uh, about this idea of truth as progressive. What does it say there? Precept must be upon precept. And just in case you didn't get it the first time, it says it again. Precept upon precept, line upon line. In case you still don't understand, it says it again <laughs> line upon line, here a little, there a little. What is that saying? Truth is what? Is progressive. Okay? People aren't going to learn it all at once. Be patient, go slow. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, it must be searched and known by other places in scripture that speak more plainly. Well, that's a good lesson we can learn from another faith. Amen? But it's something we can apply toward our Bible studies. Okay? Again, if somebody doesn't see something in a particular text, go to another text. Okay? If somebody has a question in one text somewhere, find the answer within the Bible. Okay, you know the answer, so your temptation is going to be to try to explain it to him. but again, your words have no power. The power is in the Word of God. Now, he'll use you. He will empower the words that he's instructing you to give. But just don't be off on your own. Scripture interpretation. This is something, a, 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 a kind of a premise or a or an idea I like to explore with people. If you're looking down, imagine this dot as being a fence post, okay? And that fence post, that's kind of like a nugget of truth. We're searching for nuggets of truth. Now, if I look at that second dot, do I know where the fence line is now, with two dots? Might be tempted to think so, but I look at a third one, I think, ooh, hmm. What are we at the corner of a fence line? What's the deal? What's going on here? But when I look at an array of texts, what I find is the Bible will agree with itself. It has to if it's the word of God, right? And so if I find what the Bible says and then go back and study that original text, guess what? It actually is in line with the others. I just initially didn't see it. Now, when people really get that idea, it really helps you with your Bible study. And um, four minutes to 11, it says, have a conclusion. (laughs) But I think this slide isn't going to take four minutes, so. Teaching without a conclusion is like what? It's like fishing without a hook. The fisherman may have the best lure and equipment, be a skilled fisherman, maybe he spent $30,000 on his boat, but if he doesn't have a hook, he can't catch fish. If teaching is for decisions, then the conclusion should be designed to have pupils make a decision. All right? What do you think? All right, I'm going to forge ahead. How to qualify people for Bible studies. Um, And the subtitle was Be Fruit Inspectors. What does uh, Matthew 7, verse 1 say? Judge not that you be not judged. That's correct, okay? So we think that chapter is about not judging, right? Well, the chapter goes on. And it says this in Matthew 7, verse 16 and 17, you will know them by their fruits. Judge not, you will know them by their fruits. What's what's this talking about? Whole chapters about judging. The first verse is saying, don't condemn people, okay? We can judge behavior. We know what's right and what's wrong. If somebody's behaving in a certain way, we can identify whether that's consistent with the Bible Teachings for what a Christian should be doing or not doing. We can judge that, right? But we should never condemn somebody, right? It starts out, this this chapter on judging, by saying, don't condemn people, but you will know them by their fruits, right? Can you be fruit inspectors? Can you look at a piece of fruit and tell whether it's ripe or whether it's green? Remember, one of the... um, Uh, one of the approximations Jesus made for soul winning was that of being a farmer or a gardener. Anybody here a gardener? All right, several. Is it important to know when something is ripe? Harvesting is kind of dependent upon that, isn't it? All right. So we should be able to tell when we're dealing with ripe fruit versus green fruit. Now here's some examples of what might be ripe fruit. The person manifests an earnest desire to seek and find Bible truth. They accept their Bible studies and they complete their courses and their assignments. Maybe they're lonely or unhappy or dissatisfied with their lives. Uh, Maybe they visit or attend your church regularly. They speak favorably, perhaps, of your church and its services. And they accept major doctrines and make positive decisions. What kind of fruit are you dealing with? Green fruit or ripe fruit? That's ripe fruit. Okay. They display signs that they're under conviction. They may be dissatisfied with their own church. They, maybe they don't even belong to a church or they're backsliders. They have evidence to change in lifestyle as they've learned truth. And they demonstrate a desire to share with others what they've learned. That's a real powerful indicator, right there, of ripe fruit. What about green fruit? How do I identify that? Well, they might just talk despairingly about your church. Maybe they're refusing some of the Bible studies or refusing them altogether. They don't accept clear teachings of the scripture. Maybe they're deeply involved or strongly committed to their own church and they won't make commitments. What kind of fruit? green fruit. Do you have a different objective with working with green fruit than with ripe fruit? Indeed, you should. We'll close with this idea of pre-seminar Bible studies. Sometimes you might be working in cooperation with an upcoming evangelistic series. Now, I like to look at an evangelistic series as a seed-sowing or a reaping event, which as a reaping event. So my Bible studies then would be what? Sowing. Seed sowing. All right, good. If I'm just sowing seed, then I treat it a little bit differently than I do a normal Bible study, okay? I make sure I don't do any testing truths before the seminar. I make sure I time the starting of the Bible studies so that only a certain number of studies are done because if you go wait too long, they're gonna just wanna continue the Bible study, continue the relationship with you, and they, they're not gonna to come to the seminar, okay? So if the objective is to start a Bible study, plant some seeds, invite the person to come to the seminar, then there's a, there's a little bit of a strategy that you do for that. So you start nine to 12 weeks before the series, you have four objectives. Win their friendship and confidence, lead them to Christ, lay a foundation for testing truths, And then get them to the seminar. And go with them. Sit beside them. Leverage that friendship. Okay, Leveraging friendship. That's a poor choice of words, right? Makes it sound like you have an objective for even being a friend. Don't cover testing truths. Your goal is to get them to the meeting. And then let me close by reading this from Testimonies, Volume 9 page 126. In the visions of the night, representations passed before me of a great reformatory movement among God's people. Hundreds and thousands were seen visiting families and opening before them the word of God. The world seemed to be lightened with the heavenly influence. Let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we pray that uh, whatever you design for each of us to learn here this morning, that those things would come home to us and that we would be able to implement them. We pray that we would be inspired by your plan for using our circle of influence, uh, to further the cause of Christ. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name that throughout this day that you would bless us and inspire us. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse dot org.